This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange with a series of podcasts exploring Kubrick's work and his relationship with Burgess. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Andrew Biswell enjoys a conversation with Matt Melia, Senior Lecturer in Film, Literature and Media at Kingston University. Matt's research focuses on Stanley Kubrick and Ken Russell, and he teaches a class on Anthony Burgess and dystopias. He has edited the book The Films of Ken Russell for Edinburgh University Press, and has co-edited the Jaws book New Perspectives on the Classic Summer Blockbuster. He is currently working as co-editor on the forthcoming volume Anthony Burgess, Stanley Kubrick and A Clockwork Orange, which will be published by Palgrave. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Matt Melia from Kingston University, who's a Kubrick expert and specialist. Um, hello, Matt, and thanks for joining us on the Burgess Foundation podcast. Hi, Andrew, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's very exciting. So the subject this morning is Burgess, Kubrick, and dystopia, and that's quite a lot to get through. But I thought we might begin with Anthony Burgess himself, in particular with A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed, two novels which come out of the early 1960s, both published, in fact, in 1962, and they both arise out of the same period of creativity on Burgess's part. And looking into it, I find out that he actually finished The Wanting Seed before he'd written A Clockwork Orange, though they were published in the opposite order to that. But they're, they're two books that very much come out of the same phase in his work. Um, and at this time, Burgess is moving away from the, the comedy and the social realism of his early work and starting to experiment with these ideas about the future. Um, and Matt, I wonder what you make of Burgess as a, a kind of futurologist and science fiction writer. Well, my first, I suppose my first experience with Burgess as as many people's I suppose is was through a clockwork orange uh so I suppose that kind of in my mind cemented him as a kind of science fiction writer or, you know writer of dystopian fiction this is before I sort of started branching out into reading his other novel I think this is something that, which is quite interesting in terms of how we place Burgess within the context of I suppose the post-war literary world. I mean, he's often associated with that moment of, I suppose, the new wave of British science fiction writing, people like Brian Aldiss, J.G. Ballard. But I suppose like Orwell in 1984, Burgess's dystopian writing, which really, I suppose, encompasses two novels, is atypical of the rest of his... I suppose can I mean there are elements I suppose of just you know dystopian thinking within the rest of his work, but these are two novels which are quite specifically dystopian, and I think particularly the the, you know, the wanting seed really sort of has so many really interesting elements there. But yes, it's kind of atypical of the rest of his, rest of his work, a bit like I suppose Orwell really, uh, nineteen eighty four, possibly Animal Farm, are sort of atypical of the you know the rest of his work in terms of them being sort of dystopias. Uh, or dystopian fiction. And I think this is something that Burgess himself alludes to in the first half of 1985, his sort of, I suppose, satire on uh, Orwellian writing, which came, I think, was it 1978, I think he wrote that? Can we say something about The Wanting Seed, which is the other 
Burgess dystopia that comes out of the early 60s and is obviously much less well-known, less discussed than A Clockwork Orange. But you've been looking at that. How does it compare, do you think, Matt? I think there are moments in which one text borrows from the other. I mean, you say he wrote The Wanting Seed before A Clockwork Orange but published it afterwards. There's the whole scene right in the middle of the book in which Tristram is thrown into prison just as there is a scene right in the middle of A Clockwork Orange where Alex is thrown into prison, the sort of third, you know, second act, so to speak. So structurally, it's quite interesting. I think one of the interesting things about The Wanting Seed is its presentation of dystopias, its presentation of the sort of dystopian landscape. Because where A Clockwork Orange is very centred on the urban sort of lands the dystopian urban landscape and the bureaucratic spaces uh of the sort of ministry in the prison the characters particularly tristram and joanna in uh, in the wanting seed sort of migrate between urban space and sort of rural space and what you get in the, the sort of second half of the wanting scene is, is this almost this sort of picaresque journey that tristram takes uh, as society descends into sort of cannibalism in this very carnivalesque rabelaisian way uh, it's full of sort of grotesque sort of carnival imagery giant phalluses that sort of thing but it did remind me of sort of future sort of dystopian work by people like cormac mccarthy or maybe even pd james and uh, children of men where the sort of character sort of travels through this sort of post-apocalyptic landscape i think that's a really good point about the wanting seed being uh, quite expansive whereas as you're saying that i'm thinking there's something quite constricting about the location of a clockwork orange the novel and the film for that matter, in that it's all happening in, in rooms and in, you know, kind of bars, pubs, prisons, houses, other than when they're outside, but they're still constrained within the urban landscape, the, the, the Thamesmead, um, you know, the, the, the city, except when they steal the car. That's the only moment when they're kind of free. Um, and even then, they're on their way to another house to do great violence to the, the writer and his wife, Mr. Alexander, and so forth. Uh, just one other point about Burgess and science fiction is that one of the writers he really admires is J.G. Ballard. And indeed, he went on, Burgess, slightly later to edit an anthology of Ballard's short stories, mostly science fiction stories. Um, and I think at some point in the late 50s or early 60s, he's obviously been reading Ballard and was very excited by what he found there, all these wildly inventive stories about genetically modified plants and finding life on other planets. Um, and these are the stories that Burgess selects and gets excited about. And I think some of that feeds into his own writing about the future as well. Now, one of the things that Michel Simon theorizes about is that Kubrick was making a trilogy about the future. He identifies Dr. Strangelove, 2001, and A Clockwork Orange as being linked in certain ways. And Kubrick's quite resistant to the idea, but I wonder what you make of that as a Kubrick scholar. Well, this is something that's been uh, as discussed certainly by uh, scholars like Rod Mundy or even Peter Kramer, the way that certainly 2001 and A Clockwork Orange sort of interconnect with each other. Rod Mundy for the creation of what he calls a Kubrick cinematic universe in which some images cross over into the next film. 
2001 finishes on that shot of the star child looking into the camera. Clockwork Orange begins with the shot of Alex staring malevolently into the camera. These films sort of connect up. I know Peter Kramer, in a talk he gave at the Kubrick Archive a few years ago, discussed this and the sort of the hopeful gaze of the uh, of the Star Child being sort of countered by the malevolent stare of Alex, or is it the is, is Alex a sort of development of the Star Child? Let's think about Kubrick's Clockwork Orange and what he does to the story in translation. Um, though maybe first of all we should think about. Um, why he wanted to adapt it in the first place. And I I know that he decided not to make his Napoleon film. That's quite well documented. But thinking specifically about A Clockwork Orange, what do you think it was about that book that Kubrick found appealing as a director? Well, he he turned it down in the 1960s uh, when it was being optioned around. So it had been sort of hanging around in the background for quite a few years, I think. And as you say, when sort of Napoleon fell through after 2001, he sort of returned, he, he, he returned to it. Uh, and he made it very quickly in about a year's time. I think it was the shortest time he ever spent making a film. And it was also the only film he made which didn't involve filming inside a studio. It was Christiana's wife who allegedly first gave him the, the novel to read back in the 60s, I think, uh, and recommended that he should do it. One of the things that you could maybe suggest here is that Burgess' novel isn't very long and it's quite compact. And it's quite doable in a short time, I suppose, for a filmmaker, particularly someone like Kubrick. But what's really, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I think, what's really interesting is the amount of research he did for it uh, in that short space of time as well. Also, Kubrick was very attracted to the sort of the designed world of Burgess's novel, the sort of future design of Burgess's novel. It fitted in well after 2001. And it also makes an interesting parallel in retrospect, I suppose, with Barry Lyndon, where there are crossovers between the text Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange, of course, Kubrick's two most British films, uh, which deal with notions of Britishness or sort of representations of Britishness. Can we say something about the locations of the film? Because you've done quite a lot of work uh, looking into Kubrick's research into design for the interiors and also the locations. Tell us something about that. Well, I think Kubrick's films, uh, Clockwork Orange certainly, was the only film not made or not to use a studio. Much of it filmed on location in uh, on the Thamesmead estate, which was used for the exterior of Alex's home in various concrete uh, structures, buildings, uh, stairwells. And they give the film a sort of texture, which I think ties in with a sort of moment of contemporary youth cinema as well in the sort of early 1970s, particularly British youth cinema. I think it's from like Scum, for instance, uh, Alan Clark's Scum. One of the, I mean, the the uh, design research for the film is really interesting as well, because while you might say that uh, the use of brutalism in the film roots it in a sort of contemporary reality of Britain in the 1970s, the material in the archive, the design research in the archive, which there is, there are folders and folders and folders and folders, offer a much wider, uh, much more diverse set of sources. Um, so if you, Kubrick looks to uh, not only sort of British 
contemporary architecture, brutalist design, uh, but also European design. There's pages and pages from European design catalogues. Uh, he looks to neo-futurism. Uh, he looks through pages from the, there's the uh, British Archigram uh, group who were sort of, uh, interested in sort of neo-futurist design, which is a kind of undulating uh, design. So he's looking both at home and to Europe as well. How do you think that Kubrick's design for the film coheres with Burgess's? I think Kubrick remakes the landscape of the film in ways which are completely sympathetic to it, but he's bringing so much, for example, the, the design of the Drew costumes, which are specified quite clearly in the novel. And in the film, we have something else. Uh, and there are blank spaces there as well, like the Corova milk bar. Burgess doesn't really tell us what that looks like. He says you can get milk with drugs in it, and there's a space behind a curtain or something where you go and you enjoy your, your, your sort of journey, your trip, as it were. Um, but beyond that, I mean, Burgess is quite interested in how the city fits together. Do you remember in the novel, the Droogs, they go on uh, a kind of tube train, probably a monorail. It's the future, isn't it? And they, they, they rip up, they vandalize the, uh, the seats in the, um, in, on the train. Um, and you've got the Durango 95. There's this interest in, in this car that, that doesn't exist, but it's, um, I think Durango is a city in Mexico, isn't it? But, but anyway, there, there's this um, wanting to kind of um, imitate the tropes of science fiction. Um, now, I wanted to talk a bit more about the um, connection between the Clockwork Orange and the Vietnam landscape of Full Metal Jacket, uh, because again, there, I think you've got a similar concrete dystopia, which in this case is the old Becton gasworks. And maybe you could tell us more about that. There are some interesting parallels between the setting of Thamesmead and the research that Kubrick did for Thamesmead and the, the sort of, the sort of I suppose, the, the concrete brutalist world of A Clockwork Orange and the, um, the research photographs for a Full Metal Jacket which frame the Becton gas, Gasworks as almost as a kind of decaying Gothic location, very sort of monochrome images of evanescent concrete architecture. There are, of course, really interesting, or there, there are, of course, uh, aspects of the Gothic in A Clockwork Orange where Alex is framed as a sort of expressionist Gothic monster. And he's Dracula at one point as well, isn't he, in his fantasy during the... Um... The, the, the sort of um, the, the first of the, as it were, dream sequences. Yeah, absolutely. There's also the sequence in which he sits, he, he's eating his spaghetti with the professor next to him. That's a scene straight from Dracula. That's when Jonathan Harker sits down at the table and he offers Dracula a drink and Dracula says, I don't, I, I, I don't drink. And Dracula kind of sits there watching him eat his food. The idea, I mean, the, the, uh, as Alex stumbles towards the professor's house after being beaten up by the old tramps and rejected from his home. He kind of stumbles I mean, stumbles towards the house on this kind of dark and stormy night towards the professor's house, almost like kind of Frankenstein, kind of heading towards that sort of uh, that hut in the, uh, in, the, in the forest where he meets the family. Uh, so there are kind of aspects of the Gothic it's interesting, too, to think about how interested um, Kubrick is in conditioning. I think of the, 
the opening sequence to Full Metal Jacket when another induction, like Alex in the prison, these these young men joining the Marines, having their heads shaved. Um, and I think there are all sorts of interesting connections between A Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket. For example, Joker joins the US Marines and becomes conditioned to fight and to kill. Uh, whereas, uh, and here I'm going out on a limb, maybe the second half of the film shows us his moral education and maybe even his resistance to that conditioning to how to become a, a man or how to become a marine and i i wonder how far do you think those comparisons are valid i think they're i think they're absolutely valid kubrick is i think 100 interested in deviant children or brutalized or, or children who are programmed and then attempt to break their programming 2001 for instance and how how is a, a good example of this. He is a programmed child that breaks his programming and becomes a sort of, you know, uh, a sort of uh, violent child. Alex is programmed, then deprogrammed uh, in the latter half of the film. And then he attempts to break his programming by jumping out of the window. And you get that ending, you know, I was cured all right, uh, which is... Well, different to the ending in uh, Burgess's novel, obviously. Full Metal Jacket, you're absolutely right. The first half of the film is a, is a study in the way that these young men are programmed, and the second half of the film uh, really a study in sort of how this programming, programming has sort of brutalised them. In the first half of the film, you have this one character who does break his programming, and that is Private Pyle. Uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who is the one who is less comfortably able to fit initially fit in with this world. He's not very good, he's useless, uh, but gradually he is broken down and he's programmed and ends up shooting both himself and Gunnery Sergeant Hart, uh, Hartman, played by Arlie Ermey, this sort of uh, brutal and brutalising figure. Uh, but what's really interesting is that in the second half of the film, you have this other character called Animal Mother, uh, who, uh, played by Adam Baldwin, that uh, uh, a marine uh, sort of in country in, in Vietnam, part of this uh, uh, this platoon of young soldiers, who is very much the character that Pyle would have become had he not broken his programming. He's a sort of brutal, violent programmed figure so kubrick's very interested in in sort of in, in sort of children violent children and programming and the way these the way these sort of children sort of break their programming and it's very and, you know, and similarly in, in the clockwork orange mm. i just wanted to ask you a question andrew if that's all right regarding a sort of drawing a sort of comparison i suppose or a parallel with the wanting scene in the wanting scene we've got a a sort of world that has tipped over into fully into a kind of dystopian uh, kind of setting. In A Clockwork Orange, I mean, you mentioned the Minister, the minister of the Interior there. My reading of A Clockwork Orange has always been that this isn't a world that has gone full dystopia yet, but it's on the brink of, and Alex is going to play his part in that. A, would you agree? And B, to what extent do you think that these two novels exist within roughly the same sort of inverted commas universe uh gosh really interesting questions i think first of all the 
um, bad things are happening at the end of A Clockwork Orange because Mr. Alexander and all of his political friends have all, they've been made to disappear. They've been locked up. And we're told that the reason why they need to bring in the Ludovico conditioning for criminals is because they're going to need the prisons to put their, their political opponents. I mean, this, this whole program is, it's a kind of right-wing revolution that the novel is not quite describing, but is kind of gesturing towards. And it is mentioned in the film, and it's mentioned in the book. And in that sense, you're on your way to the full apparatus of totalitarianism, something like Orwell's 1984. Yeah, that, that, that's what I was sort of driving at. I mean, it's not, it's a world that's, at the end of the novel, it, it, it's teetering on the brink of becoming a full-on sort of dystopian totalitarian regime, isn't it? Yeah, and yet, thinking about The Wanting Seed, everyone always says it's a dystopia, and of course, it's got strong elements of that. But the movement of the book is from the society that seems to be kind of, you know, weirdly skewed and broken, and there are too many people, and nobody knows what to do about that other than kill them and eat them. It seems to be the the sort of preferred political solution. And yet the ending of that novel is completely optimistic, because it's Beatrice Joanna has had her child and she's the, the kind of, um, you know, fertility principle, the earth mother, goddess, whatever. And she's looking at the sea, this kind of, um, you know, place that's full of life, um, potentially. And, and in many ways, the ending of The Wanting Seed is completely utopian. And the, the movement is, is out of the dark place. Whereas in A Clockwork Orange, You've got darkness all over the place. And at the end of the book, there's no guarantee that things are going to get any better and they may get much worse. So I, I've not really thought about these things, you know, how, how are the novels different in their, in their kind of journeys and their ultimate messages? But, you know, further work required. Is the end of a wanting seed utopian, though? Because as we know throughout the novel, and it's referred to repeatedly, that it's a sort of never-ending cycle. That's very pessimistic, isn't it? The idea that, that history and politics is, um, I mean, the, the novel describes it as a cycle, but you could say it's a pendulum. You, you swing from, from the, the kind of left wing to the right wing and you can never break out of it. Because at the end of the novel, I mean, as the novel goes through, you have this, it begins with this world of, of sort of population control where sort of dead babies are fed back into the earth to feed the people, where homosexuality is enforced by the state or recommended by the state. And then this whole thing breaks down and we get this sort of carnival-esque kind of period of change where the sort of authorities are destabilised. Um, but then when it comes back, you know, Tristram is then forced into the army to fight in a sort of staged war for the media. Uh, and, and there's there's, you know, there's, there's that idea that the, the new sort of military government are creating or staging fake wars to rout out excess population. And this whole, the, the media plays into this, you know, perpetuating the lie to the public. So again, we have this sort of move back towards a kind of authoritarian state where the problems remain. And yes, it does kind of, end on this very hopeful moment of looking out to sea but will the pendulum swing back again you know this is the this is the thing i mean i think there are 
a number of very strong ideas here. And it may be that the, the ultimate version of The Wanting Seed is not the novel, but the film script that you've been looking at, mm. because that, that comes about 10 years later, um, or yeah. more than 10 years after the novel has been published. Burgess wanted to adapt The Wanting Seed as a film for Sophia Loren. Mm. Um, she was going to star as uh, Beatrice Joanna, and Carlo yeah. Ponti wanted to direct it. And he writes the film script with um, with these particular people in mind. So um, there's also been talk recently, by the way, about HBO adapting The Wanting Seed as a miniseries. So we may not have heard the the last of it yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's an imperfect novel. It doesn't quite have the the coherence and shapeliness mm-hmm. that and simplicity that you talked about that Clockwork Orange has, yeah. but. I don't know, it'd be nice to think we haven't yet heard the last of The Wanting Seed. It may yet come round in some other form. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe now uh, it could probably get made. But, re- made. but reading through the script recently, I thought h- how he thought he would he could get this made back in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of Burgess' screenwriting, though. He, he's, he's, he's ever the optimist. Um, I mean, he's writing. Is he writing this thinking this will definitely get made? <laughs> yeah, um, hard to be sure. Yeah, but it's. It, I mean, it's. Um, it's. A, it's. It's a really interesting script, and I think what I find really interesting about it is that all that sort of stuff about Augustinianism and Pelagianism, which is present in the novel, is. I think I mentioned before. It's, it's sort of reduced and simplified yeah probably rightly it's quite hard to read uh, even in the novel um you could you could do with less theorizing and more story probably so maybe that's a good decision well matt thank you very much for joining us on the podcast we've been all over the place we've been into the future utopia dystopia vietnam uh thamesmead and all places in between it's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh thanks very much oh well thanks for having me i've had a really good time thank you You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.